to the inaugural edition of the Fret Club. My name is John Heights. The Fret Club, if you're wondering what it's about, it's about guitar players. Here's where the show comes from. Uh, as uh, some people who know me from working on Garage Logic know, I've been a writer for Vintage Guitar Magazine for over 30 years. Had the good fortune to interview a lot of guitar players, a lot of my favorite guitar players, as a matter of fact. Uh, they were interviewed with the idea that I'd be writing a feature about them in Vintage Guitar Magazine. I tape all the interviews for the magazine uh, for many years. I used a cassette recorder hooked into my house phone line. It was primitive, but it sounded good. Uh, it worked for about 25 years. Now I use a digital service app that I can automatically record the calls on. Uh, so that's where these shows come from. These are players that most guitar players will know, music fans. You'll be familiar with a lot of them. Uh, the fact that these interviews span three decades means we've lost some of these players, unfortunately, among them Gary Moore, Walter Becker, Jeff Golub, and others. But their words will be played here, along with uh, great players who are still with us, like Greg Martin, Rick Derringer, Vince Gill, Jeff Baxter, and dozens more. Uh, remember, these interviews never intended for radio or podcasts, so... Uh, might not sound uh, sometimes like you want them to sound, and they do follow a bit of a formula. We usually talk about the artist's current project, which I will always inform you about before the interview gets underway. And then we'll go into some background, maybe some influences of the player, and of course some guitar and amp talk usually. And some of the players say it gets to be more than that, which is when it gets fun. Uh, some folks like to talk about philosophies on music, on writing, on guitar playing, and various other things. The shows will appear weekly on Thursdays. I suspect most will be between 30 and 45 minutes. Some could end up being longer. Uh, the interviews will be edited to cut out things that may not be interesting or have no relevance. You will hear me talk over, laugh over, and even cough over the artists on some of the interviews uh, because, as I said, these were never meant for airing anywhere. Uh, now, of course, they seem perfect for that type of thing. Uh, that's what the show will be. I suspect it will evolve as we go along. Hopefully you'll like it. Uh, one thing I can promise, this has been a long-winded intro. I, I understand that. My intros will never be as long as this one. I just uh, wanted to make sure you knew what the show is about, where it came from, acquaint you with the show. From now on, the intros basically will be to introduce uh, each particular interview, tell you where it came from, what year, that sort of thing. So uh, why don't we start? Here's show number one. Uh, this one is going to feature country stalwart Marty Stewart. The interview recorded back in 1999 coincided with his classic record album, The Pilgrim. Uh, Stewart, he's been around a long time. Uh, music fans know he started back in the 70s when he was just a teenager. He was obsessed by country music, learned to play guitar and mandolin. He played with Lester Flatt's band for several years in his teens. That was followed in stints and Vassar Clements Band in a short while with the legendary Doc Watson. 1980, he joined Johnny Cash's band. You'll, in fact, hear him refer to John several times in this interview. That would be Johnny Cash he's referring to. He left Cash's band in 1985, hit Pater in the 1990s with a lot of country hits. Then in 1999, he made The Pilgrim, a concept album that saw him move toward exactly doing what he wanted to, not worrying about hitting the charts. A lot of guests on the album, too, friends he had made over the years, including Cash, George Jones, Emmylou Harris, Earl Scruggs, Ralph Stanley, uh, Mike Campbell even from Tom Petty's Heartbreakers, and many more. So with no further ado, uh, let's get to the interview. We start with Marty talking about where the Pilgrim album came from. I've been running on the road since I was like 12. Been riding, playing on the circuit. Mm -hmm. And I figured as our country, as the century came to an end, and really, you know, it's the end of country music's first century because, uh, you know, we've been recording country records since 1927. Mm -hmm. 
but uh, it just seemed like a milestone time for you know country music and for me. It was it was just a time to me to just to kind of draw down a marker, do something different rather than just a normal normal kind of record. Mm-hmm. Kind of close this one down and open the next door up. And uh, it was just I really didn't have this in mind when I started. I had no idea. I just wanted to do something different. I didn't know what different meant. Mm-hmm. And this thing just kind of evolved into this gorilla that it became. <laughs> <laughs> did I? How did your label react, I guess, would be uh, what I'm getting at here. So, did you get any funny looks? You know, you know what I'm saying. Oh, I expected to be escorted out of the building by yeah. security guards when I brought it up. <laughs> uh, I presented it in the weirdest way. Uh, in, in North Hollywood, California, there's a street called Lancashire. Mm-hmm. L-A-N-K-E-R-S-H-I-M, I believe it is. Lancashire Boulevard. Okay. And Lancashire was where uh, Nudie the Rodeo Taylor was. Sure, uh-huh. Manuel was there. There was a guy there named Jaime, J-A-I-M-E. Mm-hmm. All, that was kind of the boulevard of the cowboy tailors, you know. Mm-hmm. And there's a lady, and it's all gone now except Jaime's store. And Jaime's mm-hmm. the only, he's a young guy carrying on that tradition. Sure. And there's a lady out there named Rose Clements who did all the embroidery on the suits. Uh-huh. And all those years, she's, uh, you know, like a master a tailor a embroiderer from England. So Rose is, you know, closing in on 80 years old. And so I just, on three paper towels, I drew out like this little scenario of comedy and tragedy in the middle, all points of heaven and top and hell on the bottom. Mm -hmm. And uh, I took it to Rose. I said, Rose, do me a tapestry, four feet by five feet, like the greatest hits of all the embroidery of all all the great cowboys. It's just kind of a love letter to Lancashire Boulevard. Uh Uh-huh. And she said, oh, what a wonderful idea. And I said, uh, she did it. And sure enough, I mean, it's like, you know, it's a museum piece. It's just an incredible work of art. You look at it, and you just can't walk away from it. And so Tony Brown kept leaning on me about it's time to do a record. It's time to do a record. Mm-hmm. This is like two and a half, three years ago. I said, Tony, I don't have anything to say right now. Country music sounds like shit to me. <laughs> and I don't want to be a part of it uh, in its current, you know, climate. He said, well, we need to do a record. So it was came showdown day. I had to go to the record company and tell them what I wanted. So I took this tapestry with me no. and laid it to the floor. And I, I said, isn't that pretty? Everybody oohed out. And I said, that's what I want my record to sound like. And they went, what? <laughs> Excuse me? And Tony said, cool, I think. Yeah, oh, really? And Very so nice. that's how I sold them. I said, I want my record to be a reflection of country music's past, present, future, just as this is. How has, as uh, I know the album's been out for a couple months, has, has it been accepted by country radio at all? Uh, no. Yeah, that's kind of what I figured. Because uh, the first single was Red, Red Wine and Cheatin' Song. Great record. And it came back to me that it was too country, and I, <laughs> to which I said thank you very much. I've been trying to be too country for 25 years. It's a compliment. It is a compliment. Yeah. And my wife, Connie, um, Mm -hmm. made an observation the other day when she heard somebody say that. She said, you know, it's strange. We're the only genre of music that uses that term. I've never heard anybody (laughs) say it's too jazz, Mm -hmm. it's too rock, it's too blues, it's too gospel. She says, and here we stand saying, it's too country. (laughs) How can you be too country? Exactly. Would it be safe for me to say that the current climate of country radio is not 
you know, I'm a contributing factor sure. as to the current state of government. <laughs> <laughs> it really seems strange to me that uh, at the end of this, I, fi- I finally stuck a hat on my head on this album cover. <laughs> no, yeah, that's and true. Garth Brooks took his off and grew his hair long, so everything <laughs> completely gone to hell. You, you know, know what, that didn't occur to me when I looked at the cover, but now that you brought that up. <laughs> the only reason it was because it was so cold that day, you know. All right. How did you? Uh, the people that took part with you obviously are old friends and people you know. I'm assuming, and uh-huh. and I'll I will add this obviously to the interviewers who are gone. But uh, some of the people you had taking part: uh, Johnny Cash, George Jones. This will lead a little bit obviously into your history part with the Johnny Cash uh, part. But uh, these are all old friends. You just called up and said, "Hey, help me out with this." Yeah. Uh, kind of uh, the way it worked. When it went beyond being a song to becoming what it became. Mm-hmm. And when it stretched out, like, you know, I said in those liner notes, it really felt like a little opera. Sure. A little melodrama piece, you know. And I thought, well, maybe it just calls for some voices to make casual appearances, Mm -hmm. almost like angels just, you know, kind of fly in and out and then go away. Sure. And at the same time, I knew that the voices that, and and like with Scruggs and those guys as well, I knew that what I was putting on there, the people I was applying, were timeless. They go beyond any trend. Sure. And uh, that's that was kind of the, the benchmark for it. What's really funny, I know since, I can't remember if it was in the, one of the BRPs I got or whatever, but it is funny if you listen to your cuts, it's a great album. But then if, you, if the cuts that you sing, but then if you listen to the whole thing, it's an incredible album. It works on both levels if, yeah. if, if you look at it that way. Um, Okay, historically speaking, I'd like to just go back a little bit in your history. Um, for people that don't know, um, obviously you started at a very young age, um, back in some folks. Can you talk a little bit about where you started? Well, I started out on the circuit uh, when I was 12. Mm-hmm. Played mandolin with the Sullivan family mm-hmm. gospel singers. They were bluegrass gospel people. Okay. And we worked uh, mostly Pentecostal churches and camp meetings. Uh, bluegrass festivals and I believe that summer a George Wallace campaign rally (laughs) and so it was there that you know I kind of got my feet wet and uh, learned the bluegrass world and the the person that uh, became my best friend from bluegrass world at that time was Roland White okay so Roland was had a job playing mandolin with Lester Uh and he uh kind of told me one time, you know, maybe some weekend, uh, if you've got a weekend off, I'll ask Lester, you can ride along with us. Cool. (laughs) And so when when the summer was over, uh, I had to go cut my hair and go back to school, (laughs) and nobody knew who Flatten Scruggs or Bill Monroe was. (laughs) And uh, I wasn't looking for that kind of life anymore, because I'd figured out by the end of that summer that if you're a picker, you know, you can wear your hair weird, wear weird clothes, play music all night long, <laughs> chase girls, hear applause, and get paid for it. <laughs> so the fourth step to go sitting, you know, uh-huh. math class just didn't work for me anymore. Where where are you where were you from? Philadelphia, Mississippi. You're okay. Okay. So I got kicked out of school, and uh, I called Roland, took him up on his offer, and he asked Lester, and it was agreed upon. And I came up just for the weekend, and Lester heard me and Roland playing in the back of the bus. He put me on the show that weekend, and then at the end of the weekend, he offered me a gig. Yeah. <laughs> Must have been heaven at that point. Oh, man, Roland went from black and white to Technicolor. Uh, <laughs> were you playing mostly mandolin then? 
mandolin and guitar. You were playing some guitar too then. Okay. And actually fiddle. No, really? And um, we'd all heard about this thing coming from Washington State, and this thing was called Mark O'Connor. <laughs> I remember uh, we fin finally met Mark in Oklahoma, Hugo, Oklahoma, the Bluegrass Festival. Mm -hmm. People were gathered around. And man, he was fiddling. I mean, it was like <laughs> the most incredible thing I'd ever heard come out of somebody that age. And I walked on the bus and handed Lester my fiddle and said, never again. <laughs> I understand that. Yeah, man. <laughs> well, how did you end up? Uh, I know you. When did you hook up with Johnny Cash? When you were like 17? Well, Lester or? died. Le okay. And Lester died uh, in the late 70s, right? 70. I always get confused. I think it was 79. Okay. I can check, yeah. And then I worked with Vassar for just a little bit. Oh, you did? I didn't know that. Vassar Clemens. Doc and Merle. Oh, I didn't know that either. And then I went to work with John. So that must have been 2021, somewhere in there. Okay, and uh, that would have been uh, during most of the 80s, I'm assuming? Well, from 80 to 80. I think I got my record deal in 86. Okay, okay. Uh, I, I just, not too long ago, read John's book, and he has a story in there about a Martin guitar that you have to tell, because I'm curious what your side of it is. If <laughs> Do you know the story I'm talking about? Yeah, I think it was... Um it actually wasn't a Martin, it was an ovation guitar. He wasn't sure. He, in the book, I remember he put, I think it was a Martin, but he wasn't it sure. It was an ovation guitar, and it was the worst guitar in the world. No! <laughs> that particular one. Uh-huh. You know, not saying anything against ovation, but that I, I understand. one really was a piece of junk. <laughs> yes. And it was the kind, it was so bad, that it would, but the thing about it was, I nicknamed it Old Tuning, <laughs> because you couldn't knock it out of this. <laughs> Take it off on stage is I just take the back the back piece of my strap, uh -huh. unhook it and just let it hit the floor. <laughs> oh, and it still and stays in tune. So, but the guitar sounded so bad at that time I didn't have an acoustic with a pickup in it. <laughs> and John used to look at me when I play it and look like I was you know putting my nails on a, on, a, on a chalkboard. He'd just make all these faces oh. like oh my god. <laughs> So one night I told him, I said, I'm sick of this guitar. I said, tell you what I want you to do. And when he was doing some song, um, I think it was a boy named Sue. <laughs> He'd always drop his guitar and just take the, the microphone and, you know, strut across the front of the stage. Mm -hmm. And he wears like a size 14 boot or something <laughs> like that. He used to wear those boots that he'd stick his pants in and he'd come up to his knee. Uh -huh. I said, tell you what I'm going to do tonight. Doing Sue. I said, I'm going to leave that guitar laying there. And I said, I want you to step right in it in, with those boots and just wear it across the stage. <laughs> oh. And so I expected it. Everybody was waiting for it. And when he got to it, he never broke stride, man. He just dipped down and grabbed it <laughs> and took it up in his hands and held it to the end of the song. At the end of the song, he did what he said in the book. He gave, you know, he said, are there any kids out there? And his little guy uh -huh. stuck his hand up. <laughs> And he came up to the front, and when he was doing it, when he got there, I thought, well, that's why you're Johnny Cash, because you're a whole lot cooler than that. <laughs> that worked out really cool. Well, that, yeah, it is a cool story. Yeah. <laughs> um, what was it, just, you know, in general, and I know it's kind of a silly question, but what was it like working with, you know, a guy who's a legend, was it there for the start of country, start, not start of country, start of rock and roll, and for the heyday of country? When I was a kid, when I was five years old, mm -hmm. I got a record player. Mm -hmm. And the first two records I owned was Flat and Scruggs, Greatest Hits, and the fabulous Johnny Cash. <laughs> Next week I got Meet the Beatles. 
and gave it to my cousin. <laughs> and I kept the two country records. And there was something about his voice. Uh, I mean, he wasn't the ordinary hillbilly. He was he was mysterious, mm -hmm. great storyteller. And, you know, when everybody else was crazy about Elvis and the Beatles, he was my guy. You know? uh -huh. And is still my guy. You know? he's, he's the last one I got left. <laughs> and so, uh, I got to tell you, the first night I walked on stage with him, mm -hmm. when he said, hello, I'm Johnny Cash, I just hung my head and started bawling. <laughs> you certainly are. <laughs> I love him. I mean, he, he's just, I think, one of the most important contributions America has to offer as a musician of originality, very, personality. Very odd that those would be your first two records. <laughs> the only two gigs I ever had, too. <laughs> it's kind of odd. Yeah. It's uh, ironic, I guess. What, since you brought up music a little bit there, what... Uh, you seem so well-rounded musically when you listen to your records. So what what do you listen to if you're sitting around? I mean, you know, give me a typical Marty Stewart, you know, listening session. Well, I'm by myself. I still love Miles Davis. Oh, really? A lot. Very cool. Um, Miles Davis figured into, like, the making of the Pilgrim in a sense. Because when you listen to Miles' recordings, a lot of times they unfold like paintings. Mm -hmm. You know, they just don't really ever quite, after they start, they don't actually quit until they're finished. Uh, they just kind of keep unfolding mm -hmm. and take you on a little journey. And uh, that's even without words. Yeah. Miles has always been a big inspiration. I still listen to Johnny Cash. I love the uh, mid-60s version of Merle Haggard. I still love the Stones. Uh, Muddy Waters mm -hmm. hits me a lot. Matchbox 20 right now. Yes, you still listen to the new stuff. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> love Matchbox 20. Um, I, I, I think one of the best records from this year is that Share record, Believe. Believe. I think it's a beautiful record. Mm -hmm. Great production. Um, what about uh, guitar players, uh, musician, instrumentalists, that sort of thing? What kind of guys, you know, if somebody said to you, hey, who do you like? Uh, who influenced you? What would you say off the top of your head? Well, Luther Perkins. Mm -hmm. It was my original guitar influence in Muddy Waters. Mm -hmm. uh, after I moved to Nashville, got the job with Lester, Roland had a brother named Clarence that came through mm -hmm. that completely got me set on this guitar trail that I'm on now. Mm -hmm. There was a steel guitar player uh, named Ralph Mooney. Sure. That played in all the Buck Owens, Merle Haggard, and Waylon hits. Mooney's uh, steel guitar player combined with Clarence's playing. Really, you know, was I saw I saw a lot in the states to do some sessions together, like on old Wynn Stewart Records on Capitol, uh -huh. and uh, I think the two of them, along with Luther, that twanging kind of stuff, really set me on a, a, a trail of trying to figure out something on the electric guitar. <laughs> uh, mandolin players, I, I really loved the soul of Bill Monroe, you uh -huh. know, and Earl Scruggs playing. Uh, Vassar's fiddle playing meant a lot to me. Uh -huh. Young players are that. Guy out in California, Chris Thilly, I think is a brilliant young mandolin player. Mm -hmm. Ronnie McCoury plays great mandolin. Guitar player in my band, Brad Davis, is like an incredible flat picker. <laughs> uh, I'm a huge. I'm split down the middle on. In pretend, you know, when I have an electric guitar, I'm not, you know, of course I've got Clarence's old pull string. Sure. But you know, I'm just a frustrated steel player who can't play a lick <laughs> on the steel. So I'm a big steel guitar freak. Uh huh. And. Uh, on the you know, acoustic side of myself, the choices are obvious. Yeah. 
Um, let's talk a little bit about the instruments, because uh, I know some of the stuff I got with your uh, with your packet, with your BR packet. There were some incredible guitars that sounded like used on this album. Well, I've always enjoyed collecting guitars. Mm-hmm. They, you know, the only I don't care how they look, it's the sound and the feel that you know sells me on them more than anything sure. else. Uh, but you know what? The thing I got I got in on something in Nashville when I was um, when I was young is that all those guys that really counted. I mean, let's think back, like Luther Perkins. We talked about Ralph Mooney, Lloyd mm-hmm. Green played a great, you know, a lot of great steel guitar and a lot of records. Mm-hmm. Uh, Scruggs, Vassar, Kenny Baker, you know, uh, Roy Nichols, the guy that played with Merle. Merle, yep. Sure. Uh, James Burton, mm-hmm. Clarence, on, Junior Husky on bass, on and on and on. All those players, you could, you know, Don Helms is another one. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could listen to those guys, three notes. And you know who was playing yep. because everybody's tone was kind of their signature. And you know now most you know players you hear on the radio, uh, you know it's such a, it's such a you know a factory process to make records mm-hmm. at the moment. Mm-hmm. The trend, everybody is so rack oriented. You know it's <laughs> it take a search warrant to find out who played it. <laughs> you have to go to the union to find <laughs> <laughs> because tone doesn't you know give any because it's all kind of a you know process of mm-hmm. thing. Sure. But I'm a huge fan of, of finding an axe that suits you and an amp that suits you or whatever and you know find a tone in it and you know, let that be your thing. Mm-hmm. I love that. And those guitars that you're talking about they're personality guitars. Uh, most of them on the record played on you know a lot of hits. Mm-hmm. You just have them there to look at. It's pretty as looking at, at paintings. Sure. But to plug them in and still be able to play them and they still sound like a million bucks, you know, it just makes it that much richer. It's it's very nice to hear somebody who collects guitars and still plays them, you know what well, I mean? Well, that's, that's the rule. That's the rule. That's the only sense I can make out of the ridiculous prices we're paying for guitars is that I put them to work. Sure. In one form or another. I'm sure you know guys as well as I do that buy them and don't put them to work, which scares well, me. That's, you know, it's... The way I feel about it, I'm the president of the Country Music Hall of Fame, mm-hmm. and one of the things that um, I've uh, I've had a, a fun thing doing is that when we like did the groundbreaking on the new Hall of Fame, they brought me Jimmy Rogers' guitar to hold in my hand wow. and I made my speech, the one that started the Bristol sessions. Mm-hmm. It's fun. Those instruments, when Monroe's mandolin was uh, uh, kind of held up. Uh, by the executor of the estate, till, you know, for mm-hmm. like a year before the family got it back. Uh, I used to go up there and ask to see it, <laughs> and I'd take it out of the case, all the keys, you know, touch it, and it was like that. Mandolin was so used to being played, it was like you were letting it out of jail when you <laughs> sure play me. Somebody <laughs> give me some applause. <laughs> instruments want to be played. Instruments want to be played, and. I, I go through the Hall of Fame every now and then, and they let me, you know, take guitars out of the case and mess around with them. Maybell's guitar, you know, helped uh, uh, secure that to the Hall of Fame, but that's another one, man. Those things, all it takes is just pick them up and play them. They're there. Very nice attitude. I like it. <laughs> and that's the way I feel about mine, you know. That that guitar of Clarence is, uh-huh. has a following of its own. Mm-hmm. And when somebody walks up to the edge of the stage, I can tell in their eyes that they're there to see the guitar, you know. And the first thing I'd use is just hand it to them. Play it. <laughs> People actually do that? Yeah. Wow. I had a guy come up to me one time.
one time, I was still in John's band then. Mm-hmm. And the guy was crying, and he kept pointing at the guitar, and he couldn't talk for a second. And his name was Dinky Dawson, and he was a guy that ran sound for the birds, and it was his job oh. to pamper that guitar and Clarence on the road. <laughs> you know, and it's nice that that happens. That's yeah, it's a great story. Uh, when did you get a hold of that? Right. How long have you had it? Have you had it since? Oh, you did? Okay. Uh-huh. Okay. And do you still use it on stage? Oh, it has its own advantage number on American Airlines. <laughs> it travels It travels in fine style. I'll bet it does. <laughs> wow, that's a great story. <laughs> we went to Japan the first time. This was like five or six years ago. We were wearing those rhinestone suits and cowboy clothes back then. <laughs> sure. And so we were gathered up backstage in the press tent, the press area, I think it was. And me and the band and all our cowboy does, and we all had our guitars on. We were grinning for the cameras, and they went straight to our instruments. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's so cool. That'll uh, that'll take care of any ego if I. Yeah. <laughs> that's funny. Like a lot of guitar players, uh, well, Marty loves instruments. Well, I love your magazine. Well, good. You, you're familiar with it oh, then. Big time. Okay, it good. It cost me lots of money, Dad. <laughs> do, do, do you end up buying stuff out of it? Absolutely. <laughs> I bought stuff out of it. There's only two places in Nashville you can get it. Oh, really? And uh, so, you know, huh. there comes a... I try to stay away. Me and Tom Petty were talking about going to Norman's Rare Guitars in, uh, in Reseda. Uh-huh. Tom says, like, going to the dope dealer when you're trying to stay off the dope. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. Believe me. <laughs> Well, there you have it, Marty Stewart from 1999. Uh, As of this taping, the 20th anniversary vinyl edition of The Pilgrim has just been released. Uh, It's got the original songs, also features a CD of bonus tracks that weren't released with the original uh, release. Uh, Actually, hopefully we'll have Marty on uh, the show again in the near future talking about the anniversary edition. Since the interview, Marty's formed one of the best bands in country music, the fabulous Superlatives, featuring also Kenny Vaughn on guitar. Uh, They tour plenty and for several years anchored the Marty Stewart Show on RFD Television, one of the only places on TV to see honest-to-goodness country music. Also, if you watched on PBS Ken Burns' country music miniseries, you saw Marty all over it. That's because, as you noticed from the interview, he's as much historian of country music as he is musician, world-class musician. If that's not enough, all that he's doing there, Stewart also is a photographer of note. He has several coffee table-style books of photos he's taken over the years. A true renaissance man. Your first edition of the Fred Club. Hopefully you liked it. Uh, We'll talk to you again next week. Make sure you give us some feedback. You can do that on Twitter or on Facebook. Uh, You can email me at jheit at garagelogic.com. That's J-H-E-I-D-T at garagelogic.com. Also, rate the show for us on iTunes. Since it's a new show, uh, we'd like to get things up and running. Give us five stars if you liked it on iTunes, please. It's called the Fret Club, and we will see you every Thursday. I guess we won't see you. We'll talk to you every Thursday. See you next time.